I think that we are on the verge of eliminating interviews as we've always known them. Interviews made sense for hundreds of years and they no longer do and they actually haven't for quite a while. CollegeRecruiter.com, Steve Rothberg. Someone I've had a great deal of respect for for a very long time. There's a number of controversial things potentially you put out there, which is great. Show me the data and I will change my mind. I founded the business now 32 years ago. Where do you see this market today? There's so much uncertainty. The nature of work has changed. What is work today? Even if you're good at work, doesn't mean that you're gonna be happy doing it. AI is actually not gonna lead to massive unemployment. How are things different today than in the past? And, yeah. and where do you see them going? How does this need to change? change for the candidate experience. Understand that. Steve, I am absolutely delighted to have you on the show. I had been hoping and waiting for a while that we could make these arrangements with you. So, so welcome. It is so great to see you again, Manny. Thank you for having me on. We're delighted and, and I've been delighted to, to, you know, to talk with you. Someone I've had a great deal of respect for for a very long time. Uh, because of the work that you're doing, the work that your organization is doing, and the impact you know you continue to have on on this particular field. So uh, because of the sense of that impact, I'd like our listeners to get a little bit more of, of an understanding, particularly about your work with college recruiter. Sure. Uh, that was that was groundbreaking, uh, frankly, when you launched in many ways. Uh, so tell us more about that. Yeah, so um, I I founded the business now 32 years ago um, in uh, in 1991. Um, no, it wasn't online at that point. Um, almost no one was. Um, the the earliest origins of the business was uh, I was publishing maps of college and university campuses and selling the advertising around the borders. And then a few years into that, in '94, launched an employment magazine called College Recruiter, when magazines were still in print. Um, that magazine um, ended up within a couple of years um, being distributed by about 250 um, college and university career service offices around the country. There were four regionalized versions. And in 1996, when we hit that point, we were just about to go national with it. And we hadn't quite decided are we going to continue to do a bunch of different regionalized versions, maybe half a dozen or 10 around the country, or are we going to do one national version? And then a 17-year-old who worked in our office maintaining our, our network told me that there's this thing called the internet. And so we started to look at that, talk to some career service office directors, um, including a woman at the University of Minnesota where, that I'm a, an alum of, and I, I don't recall her name up off the top of my head, but she's like, yeah, you know, I'm hearing from a bunch of our students that they're using the internet, and mostly what it is is that they'll come into our office 10 minutes before they're supposed to interview with a company that they know nothing about and try to like find an annual report in one of our filing cabinets and they can't because somebody else has walked off with it who probably also was having an interview that day with the same company. And so what they're doing is that they're going to these companies' websites. And at the time, Manny, of the Fortune 500, 50 of them had websites. None of them 
had um, a, a section on their site that we would now call an applicant tracking system where the candidate could apply online. So that the 50 Fortune 500 companies, if you went to their website back then, it would generally have a page saying, we would love for you to come work with us, mail or fax your resume here. Uh, so it was, it was a different era. Um, so College Recruiter went live in 1996. We've had seven major um, upgrades. We're in the seventh version of our site since then. Um, what it's evolved into uh, today is that on an annual basis, we help about 13 million um, students and recent grads with zero to five years of experience globally um, find part-time, seasonal, internship, and then what we call early career jobs. Um, and I think you and I have both been around long enough to hear the change in the language. It used to be, we used to call that entry level um, or even like college recruiting, university recruiting. And now I think for good reasons, and I'm a big supporter of this, more and more employers are referring to that as early career. Um, and uh, we're multilingual, we're multi-currency. So we'll have employers advertise jobs with us in the US and then they'll also advertise jobs in Flemish with us in Belgium. Mm. Um, it's it's a... Uh, it's it's quite different than than publishing a little magazine. <laughs> yeah, that that's just a, it's an amazing story, and it just tells you how far we've gone in a relatively yeah. short period of time, and that's what I think makes the work today so absolutely fascinating and so challenging, yeah. uh, both for um, those involved in early careers talent acquisition but also obviously for, for the candidate. So from your vantage point, and, and I think you mm -hmm. have a, a distinctive one, right? Um, which includes a kind of global perspective, which obviously is more and more important to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see this market today? Uh, you know, as you look across um, the landscape, uh, what do you see happening right now? Where, where do you see the opportunities emerging? What do you see the kinds of challenges? W what are the things or how might you typify or describe that market right now? Uh, and let's start from an employer perspective, from a hiring organization perspective. Yeah, it, it it's it's a lot more challenging for employers now. There's so much uncertainty. And everything is changing so quickly you know in, in 20 2017 2018 2019 you know just the few years before covid it was still quite challenging as the labor market was relatively tight but the technology was not evolving nearly as quickly as it is now Along with everything else in this world, COVID really changed things. And one of the things that COVID really changed was the, I guess you could call it the democratization of work that I think more and more employers thankfully started to look at outcomes. Are you getting the job done in, and are you generating a positive return on investment instead of looking at your forehead and saying, are you sweating? If you're not sweating enough, you must not be working enough. And if you're not working enough, then you must not be productive. And that's the wrong way to look at work. You need to look at the outcomes of the employees, not whether they showed up before their boss and left after their boss, 
not whether they were really stressed and somehow that's a good thing. And when COVID started to recede and then employers started to panic, and I really looking back on it, I think there was panic. And they started to hire everybody that they could that had a pulse and was not currently incarcerated. And that led to gross overhiring, especially in tech sectors and in certain areas of the country, like San Francisco was hit you know, really bad by that. Salaries were inflated. People who were not well qualified for roles were put into those roles. Employers were managing remotely. Managers didn't have much competency in those areas. And to help fill a lot of those gaps, investment banking, investment bankers, private equity, other investors plowed a huge amount of money into our space, into the into the HR and TA tech space. And as a result, you saw organizations like, like Handshake um, raise a ton of money, uh, tons of assessment companies doing really great things. Um, but boy, for the life of somebody in talent acquisition, to try to go from 10 years ago, people were still talking about Myers-Briggs being a valid way of assessing talent to now having probably 30 really awesome scientifically validated assessment platforms out there, all looking for annual contracts, all costing at least tens, often hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Do you get rid of interviewing and replace that with assessments? I mean, it is so different for these TA folks than it was just a few years ago. Um, I, I don't know how they're keeping their heads on because they must just be spinning. Mm. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, you touch on, on a number of really important points, right? Like, like how the nature of work has changed, right? We talk about the different roles that are needed. We talked about what is work today, right? Is it hybrid? Is it in place? What are the expectations? Uh, you know, clearly we've seen a shift there. I think uh, another important observation is this whole notion of, you know, this period of kind of we might say over hiring. Yeah, is now yeah. being uh, offset by a period of, oh, let's just say we need to recalibrate uh, what mm -hmm. we're doing. And and I think we certainly see evidence of, of that, which I think is going to have some implications for the, the graduating class of this year uh, in yeah. particular. I think we're starting to see, we started to see some of it in this past year's graduating class, but I expect we will see it in this year's graduating class. Um, so that's going to be, in some cases, a little bit of a rude awakening for some candidates who, uh, especially in sectors that have otherwise uh, expected kind of consistent and, you know, ongoing, uh, ongoing growth, uh, may get a little bit of a, of a wake up call. Uh, but let's talk, let's talk about those candidates. Um, you know, how has that process really changed. We, we, we're taking a kind of a historical take here on our conversation. So let, let's think about that relative to the candidate. How how are things different today than in the past? And and yeah. where do you see them going? You know, I, I think that's one of the things we're always speculating about, right? Uh, you know, we talk about hiring and trends and patterns, but we don't talk as much about, you know, how does this need to change for the candidate experience? Yeah. You know, um, as you may know, 
I'm a bit of a history nerd. I I would not call myself an expert, but I really enjoy it. I'm really fascinated by it. I love to sort of look back at different historical events or periods to try to inform myself about, have we been through times like this before? And if we've been through times like this before, how did we handle this before? Did we handle it well? Is there anything we can learn? In the current labor market, if you're a software engineer, two years ago, without assistance from AI, you were probably 10, ten times less productive than you than that same person would be with the assistance of AI. That doesn't mean that you're going to get rid of 90% of software developers. It means that your software developers are going to be 10 times as productive. It's a little bit of a different thing. Now, in today's labor market, I think what that means is is that AI is actually not going to lead to massive unemployment. I think what it is is that it's going to lead to actually massive um, increases in employment in certain sectors. If you're a company and thinking about building some piece of software and you can do it for a tenth of the cost... Maybe a year ago, you would have said, forget it. It's not worth it. We're not going to get a positive return on investment. Now with AI, and especially a year or two with AI, suddenly that software project becomes very compelling because your cost of creating that product goes way down. I think we're going to see with AI that all of us in all sectors are very quickly going to become far more productive. And that is going to lead to the cost of goods and services dropping. We're going to have higher standards of living, not lower. But there are going to be some massive inequalities, even more so than we have now. So certain countries around the world are not going to benefit as much as others. We're fortunate here in the U.S. We're clearly going to benefit a lot. But Developing countries where AI isn't as prevalent, they don't have the same industries that we do, there's going to be more disparity between the U.S. and and, and other industrialized countries and countries that aren't. And I think that's going to lead to more and more global turmoil. So in that sense, I'm pretty worried. Um, You know, if you're you're in an impoverished country and you are fishing pretty much the same way that your great, great, great grandparent did. Um, The value of the fish that you're catching is going to drop in comparison to the car that you might be looking at buying or the shovel. Um, You know, certain things are going to go down in price. Certain things are going to go up in price. Um, So that worries me for, you know, but for American graduates of 2023, 2024, I think what you're going to find is that the winners are going to be people who know how to make AI work for their benefit. Those who aren't afraid of it, those who embrace it, those who use it. Um, So I'm seeing, fortunately, more and more schools, professors, teachers at all levels of education starting to realize that, you know what, AI is not something we need to block from our classrooms, like blocking the use of ChatGPT, for example, 
But instead, it's like, this is another thing we need to teach our students how to use, just like computers. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, from a higher ed perspective, um, there's obviously a lot of discussion about generative AI. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually, if you think about it, you know, the, the actors and um, creative strike right now is about AI. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. about, you know, a generated AI content, ownership of it, um, the extent to which it uh, duplicates, mimics, imitates, you know, the creative yep. process. Um, so I think this the, the topic is going to be one we're going to be talking about for quite some time. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I agree. I think some of the implications seem clear. But as with all changes, there will be some unintended consequences that, yeah. uh, you know, it'll take a little while to recognize. But from a higher ed perspective, well, I'm sorry, I was just going to say from a higher ed perspective, I think that um, despite the debates, I think you're going to see everyone essentially winding up with how do we embrace, incorporate, utilize AI uh, in the way we teach, in the way we learn and in the way we prepare ourselves um, mm -hmm. to, to, to be successful in, in whatever career pathway or profession we choose. So I, I think that is certainly something which kind of typifies the world today, right, for the candidate, uh, not only in terms of their, their comfort, familiarity, their ability to even do something as simple as ask the right prompts, you know, when they're using AI um, in the work that they do. Uh, but I think the other part of it is even in the search process and the application process, I think a lot of candidates don't realize the extent to which AI is actually something they're experiencing throughout yes. the process. Um, and, and I think that's something that, uh, on, again, on the higher ed side, we want to work hard to make sure candidates understand. And if you think of all the platforms that are currently in use and available, they all have some generative AI component uh, mm -hmm. as we continue to move from, you know, basic algorithms and recommendation engines to, you know, AI driven feedback on, you know, your interviewing, your, uh, your cover letter, your resume, your LinkedIn profile. So I think it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating time uh, when it comes to the way technology has imbued itself into this entire process. So from your perspective, Steve, what would you say to a candidate today that that would really help them kind of stay on top of the game, be as effective as they could? Are there some words of wisdom you would want to drop on, you know, the candidates of today about, um, you know, the, the, the process of, of identifying and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, finding that job that they're looking for? Yeah. You know... It, it's not all that different than it would have been five, 10, even 20 years ago. And when, if I'm talking, whether it's to my adult kids or their friends or, you know, or, or other candidates who are relatively early in their careers, one thing that I try to get across to them is not to worry about at the age of 20, what they're going to be doing when they're 60. If they can try to figure out what they want to do for the next five years, then great. Because the world is going to look really different five years from now. They're going to be very different five years from now. So what 
What I typically counsel them to do is to look at their competencies, their interests, their values, and like what kind of compensation they need to live the way they want to live. Understand that if you apply to a job and you don't get that job, is a really good chance that you are well qualified. And so don't beat yourself up about why didn't I get hired? You know, I went on these five interviews. I didn't get hired. There must be something wrong with me. The reality is most of the time when employers are hiring someone, they could hire two, three, four, five different people into that role and be happy with any of them. There's probably another candidate out there that had something that you didn't, but that doesn't mean that you weren't well qualified. Uh, it just might mean that, and this has happened with us at College Recruiter, where you know we're, we're thinking about hiring somebody for a particular role. We have in mind what their qualifications might be. Somebody comes along that has that and other stuff that we never thought we could get. You know, maybe we're looking at hiring a software developer, but they also speak Japanese. Well, we would never have put Japanese as a requirement or even a preference. But if you speak Japanese, well, that's really interesting. We might be able to put that to use a year from now or three years from now. It might give us a, a different way of looking at, at how we do things. So don't get discouraged if you're having a hard time finding the right role. At the end of the day, I think what we all want to do is, is make enough money that we can pay our bills, right? That we can be happy in life. And hopefully when it's, when it's our time to, to check out, to, regardless of what, we, what you or I or anybody else thinks that that might be, um, that we've left the world a better place. And, and if we can do that, does it matter that you're an environmental scientist or that you're a barista, or that you're an actuary, you know, focus, focus on those things, live a good life. And, you know, let your mother-in-law decide whether or not what your profession <laughs> is, is the right thing. <laughs> so, you know, Steve, as, as, as you were talking about this, um, you know, I was really struck with, with this whole notion of the way um, young people tend to think about their mm. their career pathways, right? Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, to your point, um, it hasn't changed. There are people who yeah. are uh, you know clearly very very focused on a particular mm -hmm. role or a particular organization, um, but I think there are a growing number of young people who are far more flexible about yes. what success means, mm -hmm. what work means. And um, I, I think, in a healthy way, are taking a little bit of that longer view that that you know that you talked about. You know, we say that at Harvard all the time. Um, if you look at the career progression of graduates, you find fascinating insights. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think that would be true, obviously, at many institutions. So I'm heartened when I see that. Um, but but I'm also kind of bemused by um, candidates who say, yeah, I'm looking for the highest paying job with the least amount of stress mm. and expectations for me. And mm -hmm. um, and again, I, 
I think that that's just part of the way people are looking at the role of work, the nature of work, you know, differently than they than they have in the past. I think it's healthier. I, I'm I'm a Gen Xer. I'm 57. When I was in college and graduating, there was no talk amongst any of my friends about whether this occupation is stressful or not. Whether right you you know. I graduated with a finance major from undergrad. So you would be looking for a job where you're going to put your finance major to work. And the job that you would select would most likely be the one that paid you the most. And your family and your friends, they all would have said, that's the way to go. And I think that's why there's so many people who are unhappy. It's because even if you're good at work, doesn't mean that you're going to be happy doing it. And I'm, I'm really heartened by the younger generations. Uh, I saw it with the millennials, definitely see it with Gen Z. I think it'll be the same with, with the, with the alphas is that they, is that work is a means to an end. It's not the end of, of in and of itself. Yeah. I, I would definitely concur. We, I, I think as, as I talk to my colleagues, um, around the country and, and we talk about, you know, students and candidates, especially in that zero to five, that early career space, mm -hmm. um, that, that would resonate with them. I think those are the types of things that they're seeing, hearing, talking about, um, you know, with candidates, which it's again, makes it interesting, right? In terms of how you approach the job search, in terms of how you might be assessed by mm -hmm. uh, potential employers, because there's still that, that a, a little bit of that tension, you know, between those expectations, right? We see it in a very simple way today with organizations that are saying, okay, come on back to work. And other yeah. organizations that are saying, well, maybe not so fast. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. work uh, and how we define where we work and when we work as, as, as something, you know, um, obviously different than, than what we've imagined. And for, you know, for, for the employers too, like, you know, your, your guest recently, Dan Black or, you know, EY, uh, you know, one of the smartest people, one of the smartest organizations out there. And you can bet that they are spending a ton of time figuring out um, how do we keep our people. 20 years ago, those discussions would have been, we should make our 401ks better, you know, stuff like that. And now I'm sure it's, it's, it's going to be largely about making people happy when they're at work and making them on Monday morning when they wake up and that employee says, awesome. It's Monday. I can't wait to get to work. Whether it's in their spare bedroom or whether it's commuting downtown, I want to work. I want to be with my coworkers. The work is interesting and challenging to me. And hey, if I can buy a boat and stuff on the side and maybe take a, make me take a nice vacation, so much the better. You can bet that employers like EY are spending a ton of time figuring out how to make that happen 20, 30 years ago. I don't think most employers really cared whether you were happy or not. Yeah, I I, I really think that's true. And uh, again, it makes for some interesting challenges, right? I think one of the, the challenges for recruiting organizations today is how do you communicate that philosophy? How do you communicate that mindset? Mm. Um, how do you convince the candidate that this is not just what we have on our 
you know, on the hiring part of our um, of our website. This is not just reflected by the individuals we send to campus or that you first interact with as a candidate. I think that genuineness is mm -hmm. really incredibly important to candidates, but it's also incredibly difficult to communicate. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think, you know, the, the, the work College Recruiter, for example, has done to surface uh, internships and apprenticeships and, and, mm -hmm. and co-op opportunities. Uh, to me, this whole notion of experiential learning is, mm. is also something that I think has become more central than it ever has been to that process of exploring and trying to understand a particular employer, a particular role, a particular profession. And uh, I, I think uh, that's another trend. I wonder if you're seeing more and more uh, institutions uh, offering these kinds of programs. Yeah, Manny, absolutely. And I think it's fantastic. And it's definitely, it's an area that, that I think is a company that, that we, we can and should do more of. But an example is, um, and I don't know off the top of my head if, if Harvard works with this organization or perhaps partners with them, but certainly you've heard of them, but Parker Dewey, um, one, of, one of the real, um, um, one of the best micro uh, internship uh, organizations out there. And, and there are a number of them, but they're the ones that, uh, that I first sort of like really discovered and figured out what this is all about. You know, internships are fantastic month, two months, three months, basically temp to perm role, you get to discover, is this employee, do I like this employer? Do I like this work? They get to discover the same in reverse. Do I like this person? Do they do good work? But micro internships are like that on steroids, right? Here's an eight hour project. And then if, and if you do well on that and they like you, you like them, then maybe that eight hour project turns into a two week or two month or two year or 20 year um gig with that employer i think we're going to see a lot more of that that sort of that project oriented work that that i love you you love me so let's keep this going and you know what when my life changes or your work your work changes it's been awesome the door is open for me to return five years from now or 10 years from now but right now we're not a good fit I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Quite frankly, for people like me who embrace change, that's exciting. I recognize that probably most people aren't so excited about that. They want stability. And even if they go to work and they turn off their brain for eight hours and just kind of do the same thing over and over again, they go to work, they get a paycheck. What they really want out of work is a paycheck so that they can buy food, pay their rent, and buy medicine. And I think that it's easy to forget that that's what most people are like, that that's the situation that they're in. We talk about fulfillment at work. You know, for most people, fulfillment is not being evicted from their apartment. And it's, it's at a different level. Young adults today are much closer to, to that you know, one step removed from poverty than Gen Xers or boomers were. And, and, and I, we need to be reminded, those of us who are older generations, we need to be reminded that their finances, their ability to kind of make it 
is more precarious than it was in our generations. Mm-hmm. And, and and I and I think that that is influencing um, a large number of young people about the career choices that mm-hmm. they want to make, or at least their initial thinking about the career choices they 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 want to make. Yeah, you know, and I think there's a certain degree of privilege to that, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And, but there's also, uh, you know, that that kind of practicality. If I'm a first generation college student, um, and I get a high paying job. Mm-hmm. I can make a significant major difference for my family, for my community. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, we, we often have to div, d- dig a little bit deeper than what, you know, we might see on the surface to really kind of, you know, understand that motivation and to be respectful of it mm-hmm. uh, and and to do what we can to kind of uh, to kind of nurture it. Um, let me let me ask you this. I, it's It's been fun that we've taken kind of like a historical take. <laughs> on you know some of the questions today, so let let, let me ask you about uh, a future take. Sure. You know if you were if you were looking down the road, say ten mm. years from now, mm. and you were talking about what that you know that that whole recruiting hiring process would be like, or is there anything that in your mind would stand out? that is different than what we're seeing today? Is there any, maybe there's one or two or three things that you would say, ah, that's really different about the future than it was if I go back and listen to that podcast with Manny in 2023. (laughs) Um, This is such a great question. And and, um, I I, I won't trot out the soapbox for a long time, but I'm going to focus on one thing. I think that we are on the verge of eliminating interviews as we've always known them. I think that interviews um, made sense for hundreds of years and they no longer do and they actually haven't for quite a while. When, When you look at the studies of how valid, scientifically valid are interviews, very consistently it is, they are about as accurate as a Ouija board. Um, they are, they make the interviewer feel more comfortable and to a large extent to justify their existence, to their place in that hiring process. The reality is they are a horrible predictive tool. Because some people, I think you would fit into this group, maybe I would fit into this group, that we like to talk, we can schmooze, we can tell stories, we probably generally come across well in interviews. If I'm hiring an accountant, if I'm hiring a software developer who doesn't need that ability to schmooze and tell stories in order to do their work effectively, what do I care whether they can do that for 20 minutes in some tiny little room off of a school library? It's just, it's not relevant. We need as a TA profession, we need to do a better job of identifying the characteristics of candidates that are actually performance related. Show me that you can do the work. It's one reason why internships have been so important to to leading organizations is because it allows the candidate to prove that they can do the work well 
and the same in reverse, that, that they, the employer is a good fit for them too. It's why micro internships, I think, are so exciting to so many people. Because again, I can interview you, you can go through three, four rounds of interviewing, and we can spend four or five hours as a company, maybe 40 hours as a company, evaluating you. And at the end of the day, we're throwing a dart at a dartboard. All we're doing is kind of inferring from what you've said. Is she likely to be able to do the work well here? Why not just see if she can do the work well here? Give her a project and see what she does. One of the things that a lot of employers are discovering, and this is not new, the last year or two, this is probably probably in the last 10 years, I've seen this evolution. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this really quickly, is that with rare exceptions, liberal arts students, for example, can do exceptionally well in science roles, software engineering, research, et cetera, because they have the training to think critically. So they don't have the degree that employers have traditionally looked at, but they have the ability to learn, to think, to, to, to question. And so I think we're going to see a lot more employers using scientifically validated assessments and actually testing. Can you do the work that we're hiring you to do? That is super encouraging to me because it doesn't matter whether your family came from Russia or from Greece, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're disabled, whether you're an Olympic athlete, doesn't matter. Can you get the work done? If you can get the work done, here it is. And so of those biases that we all have, you know, he just, you know, in the movie Moneyball, remember it's mm -hmm. like he had an ugly girlfriend. So somehow that made him a bad baseball player. Like that was a great example. It's like, how the heck are those two things correlated? They're just not. Can you hit the ball? Can you catch it on the run? And if you can, here's a glove, get out to left field. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you have a girlfriend or not, whether she's attractive or not. It just doesn't matter. Get the job done, you're hired. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I, I'm excited about that. I think that's going to lead to a lot better alignment between talent and work. People are going to be doing work that they're better suited to. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I think that the, this whole notion of, of a world where hiring is really driven by what's needed in the role, not just, not just immediately, but long-term, right? Yeah. Um, I think as we continue to become more sophisticated in assessments, in the kinds of activities, uh, and we, we already see early evidence of this, right? Organizations that are utilizing, you know, uh, kind of micro experiences. Let me let me use that term as part of the um, you know the assessment process. That yes. may be using instruments that are far more um, far more effective, far more comprehensive. Um, that are eliminating biases. I think everything we can do that eliminates bias from mm -hmm. the candidate identification and selection process is a positive thing. And I think that's the sea that causes all, you know, the rising seas that float all boats, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think that's something that uh, for, for many people who are in the business now and who've been in it for a while, 
that's been the kind of holy grail, right? That mm-hmm. that that time, and I I I don't think it's all that far off, and right. I think there's momentum there for it. There's the technology there for it. There's a sense of the importance there for it. Um, you know, we're, we're we're battling some headwinds in today's world, uh, sadly, um, that you know are are, are kind of introducing. Uh, challenges to our paradigms of, you know, diversity mm-hmm. is important. Um, that uh, yes, not everyone starts off. There is there is not a level playing field, um, and uh, you know, I, I think those kinds of headwinds are, in my mind, short term. They may be strong headwinds, but I I I don't believe they 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 will blow they will blow out. Um, I I just don't see. That the world can, uh, you know, can go back in time. Even though I think I think some people clearly or passionately would like to do that. And when I think about success at the individual level, at the organizational level, I think those principles um, that you just articulated in, in terms of what the future will uh, likely look like are going to be incredibly impactful, uh, mm-hmm. and they they are going to change lives. Mm-hmm. So, um, Steve, I've been delighted to have you as a guest on this episode. I look forward to bringing you back again to awesome. talk about, you know, uh, other topics in this interesting uh, space. And I know our audience will will benefit from the perspectives and insights that you shared today. And uh, I, I, I think there's a there's a number of controversial things potentially you put out there, which is great. You know, <laughs> I'd love to see how people react to eh, interviews, you know, really won't be the thing. Um, I, I think that's precisely what we like to hear from our guests and, and, and things that will generate that discussion and reaction. So, again, thank you so show much. Me, yeah. Show me the data and I will change my mind. <laughs> Amen to that. Thanks again, Steve, so much. Look forward to having you back. Maddie, it's been great.